0: So listen, as we kick in, our time is a little bit limited today, Uh, I want to turn you to Daniel chapter 7, and as I've been saying, at least for a couple weeks, Daniel 7 presents a, a sweep really of human history all the way... To the end of the world as we know it. To the end of this age. And you think well that sounds a little ominous. I think no. It's not ominous. It just means that there's a purpose for us. A purpose for his church. A purpose that Christ and God the ancient of days has for both the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. And so this is not utopia as We all know so clearly. This vision in Daniel 7 moves us all the way to the consummation of history when all nations will be judged and where Jesus Christ will reign. And so it's to that chapter that we turn in chapter 7. And before us is the coronation of the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days and the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just read and follow along in 7, 13 and 14. Here is the word of God. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall or shall not be destroyed. May God bless the reading of his scripture. History culminates in the son of man receiving a kingdom. Now, remember we've put that map out there just briefly, these three powerful assurances in Daniel 7, assurances of the sovereignty of God over the nations and the coming of Christ that should actually inspire hope rather than fear. That's our map. We'll need a couple more messages in seven, but that's where we're going. And the first assurance, first powerful assurance of God's sovereignty was the revealing of God's prophetic will over all the human kingdoms of the world. You remember that rising out of the sea was four beasts. In fact, look at verse Two, Daniel saw in the vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Verse three, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And he spent extra time, verse 7, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped out what was left with its feet. It was different from the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And so here was that assurance, because for Daniel, this is prophecy, He is writing this, doesn't see the second, third, and fourth kingdom, and that's exactly what happened in history. But he gives us a second powerful assurance of God's sovereignty, and it's God as the judge over the uh, Antichrist and the final history of the world. And he went on to explain that, that in two thoughts, that number one, he's judge. Because the Ancient of Days, um, the little horn rises up. The little horn we've identified as the Antichrist. And the little horn meets his death in verse 11. Look at it there, okay, where it says, and it says, and as I looked in verse 11, kind of in the middle, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and it was given over to the, to the, what it says there, to be burned with fire. And so God is the judge and he will slay, if you will, in the future, the Antichrist. And we looked at that. But then there was something else here in that revealing us God as God is judge. It's the coronation of the son of man. Look at it in verse 13. He says there, there came one like a son of man. That is a title, excuse me, used by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. So it's stated there's one coming as the son of man, he's like a son of man, and that is the title that Jesus gives of his himself. It is his own self-designation in the New Testament. I believe in the New Testament, 82 different times, Jesus is referred to as the son of man, okay? So he is the one, think about it this way, 25 years earlier that Daniel is prophesying about. Beloved, this is the power of the word of God. And so as you get to the New Testament, Jesus uses that title. Now you remember I mentioned last week that the predominant use of the son of man refers to his second coming as a judge of the nations, He's coming to judge the nations. He's coming to judge individuals. The books are going to be opened, okay? In Matthew 16, 27, it says the Son of Man is going to come. And again, it's the second coming. He, you say, well, do you, does everybody look at it the second coming? No, some don't. And we're going to get into some of this today. Some identify this as his first coming. Or they identify the passage that I'll read in his earthly ministry. Some even would identify this as his death, burial, and ascension. But here, when you look in the New Testament, the Son of Man in 1627 is going to come with angels. This is the power of his second coming. He's going to come in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's addressing here, look at verse 14. That given to him is dominion and glory and a kingdom. So here within the great tribulation, the son of man goes before the ancient of days And he is given at that time, at that place, dominion and glory and a kingdom. And so we can't get away from that word kingdom, okay? Certainly he rules now, we would identify that. If you're a believer, he rules in your heart today. Certainly there is a rule of his lordship that takes place, but there is a coming day and his second coming, as he comes in power and glory in the clouds of heaven to establish a literal, physical kingdom on this earth. In fact, I mentioned Matthew 24 27 speaking in the Olivet Discourse, not regarding the destruction of the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. It goes beyond that. As lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, he's addressing the second coming of Christ. In fact, Matthew puts it this way in Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine. Immediately... Interesting, after the tribulation of those days, this is still future. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. And it says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then, then, All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. So watch this. Even though his kingdom was inaugurated in his earthly ministry, inaugurated, there is a consummation or a full realization, or a full manifestation of that kingdom on earth. In fact, Matthew went on in 25, 21, when the Son of Man comes in glory, and the angels with him, then he will sit, I want you to think of this, on his glorious throne. We take that, Not symbolically, not metaphorically. He is coming. Every eye will see him. The tribes and the nations of the world will wail. And it says that he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him is gathered all the nations. I take that literally. He's coming as the judge. Now, now look again at verse 13. I'll be brief here. He's coming in the night vision. In the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And you remember that in the Old Testament frequently that when clouds appear, you say, are they real clouds? Yes. They're physical clouds. All over in the Old Testament, where the Shekinah glory would come down, and the pillar of fire would lead them by by, by night and the cloud by day as they moved out, and here what 's incredible is though he's the son of man in his humanity there is coming a day beloved high school student that he will come and every eye will see him and as he comes he comes in a cloud and he's going to be seen if you will and here he is given by the ancient of days A kingdom and he's coming in the clouds. He comes with a divine manifestation with the clouds of heaven. This is the second coming. Look, it, maybe it comes up on the screen, screen in Revelation 1 7. Behold, he is coming in with the what? Clouds. We're not talking about his first coming here. He came in lowliness. He was laid in a manger. He was run out of many towns for performing miracles. He was crucified by the Jewish people and by the, by the Romans. But one day, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. That's not metaphorical. They're going to see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He's coming with the clouds. So is he human? Yes. Is he a son of man which is a figure often used in the book of Ezekiel of humanness, but Daniel is seen beyond that. And then of course when Christ mentions himself by the son of man, we know that it's him. It says in Revelation 14:14 14, 14, I looked and behold here it is again, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head, interestingly, and a sharp sickle in his hand. He's coming down to render judgment, if you will, on the earth. You know, it's interesting. In Acts 1, he was lifted up in a cloud took them out of, out, of, out of their sight. Men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go to heaven. He's gonna come in essence in the same way down at the second coming in a cloud. And so the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds is a direct reference to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. Now, I want you to pay particular attention at verse 14. It says, and to him, we know that, to be the Son of Man, was given. Look at it, dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. I love that. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now, he's given there a kingdom. And when you're expositing the text, as we're doing each week, It's probably fair that I just stop here uh, for this week and probably next week and talk about dominion and glory and hear a kingdom. What kind of kingdom is this? Well, we know from those passages that the visible return of Christ At his second coming, and at his second coming, it will also involve the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this earth for 1,000 years. This is what the scriptures teach. You say, well, Scott, where does it teach that? Look in your Bible and we'll start at Revelation chapter 19, okay? And I'm not putting these up on the screen here because I think I want you to read it with me and see it. Revelation chapter 19 and 20 are going to address this. You remember, and I think this is interesting, that the scene switches into the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then in Revelation 19, he says, when I saw the heaven opened, here's John the Apostle, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, and here's the consistency, he judges and makes war. So the Ancient of Days is going to slay the antichrist Daniel 7:11 and here the son of man will come and he will judge and make war look at the consistency his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on it that no one knows Uh, But himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the horse, and from his mouth come a sharp sword. He is, in verse uh, 16, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is a massive battle here, but I point you to this in 1919. And I saw, watch this, the beast, that's the Antichrist. That's the son of lawlessness. That is the son of destruction, the the Antichrist that we spoke. But look at it. It says in 19, the beast and the kings of the earth, with their armies gathered to make war against him, against Christ. This is anti-Christ. It is both anti-God, but he's also anti-Christ. It says there, he makes war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, watch this, and with it, in other places of Revelation, the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, praise God. He took care of them. And we looked at that in Daniel seven eleven. And in fact, it says, and the rest were slain by the sword and came, that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I have stood over that valley in Israel a handful of times looking at where the battle of Armageddon will be. And it is just a broad valley. And the Bible says that the nations are going to be gathered there. So here as he comes back, now it's interesting, he doesn't slay the dragon because at the end of the tribulation, he's going to come just like it says in Daniel and he slays, if you will, the beast and the false prophets, they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. You say, what happens next? Well, look at the text And, and listen, I'm just appealing to you. Okay, because there's most, many believers who don't think Revelation is for today at all. There there may be what we would describe as all millennial. There's no kingdom. And the book of Revelation, they do their best to pin the date back at probably 65 AD. So that all that I'm reading to you is already been accomplished by the Roman general Titus at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But what we're saying as a group of elders to you and what we teach, we believe in the tribulation. We believe that Christ will come. We believe that he will slay the beast and the false prophet. You say, well, then what happens next? Well, just put your eyes on Revelation 20. Then, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the what? The dragon. That is another name for Satan. That ancient serpent. Another name for Satan. Who is the devil? The diabolos. Another name for Satan. And Satan. And he bound him. What does it say? For a thousand years. What, what, what's the link here? He gave him a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? Well at the close of the tribulation. A millennial kingdom. Okay. And so you say. how do, Where do you see this on the millennium? Well just keep reading. He threw him. Verse 3 into the pit. And shut it and sealed over him. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and after that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years, third time. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is, it says, the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over which the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him, what, for a thousand years spoken again. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. It's an amazing text. I just submit to you humbly that six times... In the book of Revelation chapter 20, the kingdom is stated there for 1,000 years. That word for 1,000 years is the word that derives out of a Latin phrase, a 1,000 years. So when he's given a kingdom, that's a millennial Kingdom and it's a thousand year period. This kingdom, beloved, is identified with the promises of God in the Old Testament. Praise God, as a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of blessing. Six times, John the Apostle says that the millennial kingdom is for a thousand years. Now, there are some people, and I'll explain this more, who say it's, that phrase is only used in Revelation, true, chapter 20, and it's used you know, just once there or once in the Scripture in that passage. But as R.C. Sproul said, all the Bible has to do is say it once, and we should listen. And he said it six times in a row, okay? I mean, I'm thinking if I were John the apostle or if he's under the spirit of God, that Christ will rule and reign for a long time, for a many years, for a long time. But six different times, he says 1,000 years. Now, beloved, you know that there's different views on the nature of the kingdom. The debate is over if Revelation 20 and the coming kingdom promised to Christ is to be taken literally, or I suppose, metaphorically, or in that metaphorical picture, spiritually, if you will, This is a hotly debated topic within Christianity. And I'm gonna lay out some of those views for you. Um, But let me say at the outset from my heart, this is not an issue to break fellowship over, okay? So I don't wanna come off over dogmatic. It's not an issue to break fellowship over, And I I almost hate to say this, but I'm going to say it. I think here in this millennial kingdom is, you would agree with me, is a secondary doctrine. In other words, we're not talking about the deity of Christ. We're not talking about the nature of the triune God. We're not talking about the inspiration and infallibility of the word of God. We're not talking about the character of God. We're talking here about the timing of Christ. I would have to say some of my dearest friends are of a different persuasion than mine. And we can laugh about it. And rejoice over it. Because in the big picture, God wins and Christ wins. But we're dealing with this question in Daniel. He gives them a kingdom. What kind of kingdom is that? I mean, at the same time, I would say, in light of what I just said, this doctrine is crucial, vital. You say, why? Because I want you and our own church, to know the storyline of the Bible. And I want you to know your role in that kingdom. Now, beloved, sadly, some avoid the discussion of the millennial kingdom altogether, don't they? Some would think if the theologians can't figure it out, then how can I figure it out? So have you heard people say, I'm a pan millennialist. It just all kind of pans out at the end. And so they just avoid it. But listen, you're sitting here and I'm preaching and we preach the whole counsel of God. So I'm not going to avoid it, okay? And I don't think it it will all pan out and people will see that we're right. <laughs> Okay, okay, but I'm not gonna shy away from it, and neither should you. So put your thinking hat on, noble Bereans, and let's follow the text. Now, I don't wanna be a professor here today, okay, but there's three common thoughts on the millennial kingdom post millennialism, I think, be thinking, you're, you're, I'll explain it. Post mill, there is, is, of course, ah-mill. And then there is, cor- of course, thirdly, what? Pre-millennialism. So you can hear it in the words a little bit: post-mill, ah-mill, well, I'll define them, and pre-mill. But we're talking about the nature of the kingdom. Can I give them to you just briefly? Okay? Um, I don't. You know, you should know this. I think many of you have been hearing things on this over the years. But post-millennialism is that position that Christ returns to the earth after the what? The millennium. That would, Therefore, he's coming at the end of the millennium. Post, obviously, means after. You say, well, when did this come into play? Well, it originated in the writings of a man by the name of Daniel Whitby in the 17th and 18th century. It is a view, post-mill, that we're in the millennial reign of Christ right now. In other words, he's reigning in your hearts. That reign is spiritual in nature. But this view of the millennium gives a rather figurative interpretation of prophecy. And what they mean by this is that the present age brings about the millennium through the preaching of the gospel. So we're in it right now. And you usher in, believers usher in this millennium through that preaching. Sometimes people refer to this as the golden age. They believe that a vast majority of people will be saved. It is a time of expansion. It is a time of the progress of the gospel that merges into the millennial kingdom. It is a time of spiritual gain. It is a time of transformation. It is a time of peace. Is what they teach. It is a time of righteousness. It is a time of economic blessing in the world. The world will get in this view. Maybe if I could just summarize. It's going to get better and better and better as we take over institutions. As we take over politics, the whole world, I would say it this way, will be Christianized before Christ returns. He returns post-millennium and you bring in that millennial kingdom. I would say in this position, just understand, the book of Revelation has already happened. Jesus Christ came to judge and he already did. You say, well, when did he do that? He did that on Israel in 70 AD. And I think maybe as you hear me speak, it's just a difficult view. I don't need to say much more there. I don't think it has much credence. You say, well, why? Well, look at our world today. You know that and I know that. That How could the world keep getting better and better and better when it says in Timothy that bad times will proceed from bad to worse with those deceiving and being deceived? We're not getting better. We're recognizing the devolution of our world, are we not? When we don't understand what a man is and understand what a woman is, and I've had the privileges to do three marriages in one week, and it's glorious. But when we don't know those definitions, and we can't make a decision on gender, it's unbelievable. We're not getting better and better. And listen, this came out years ago, but one of the things that I would say about this, and say about this view, is that we've already suffered through World War I, Not a good time. We've already suffered. There may be some of you who were born during the Great Depression. We've already suffered through World War II. And just for you history buffs, how many people were killed in World War II? It's a question. I mean, I think you look at the numbers with what's going on in Israel and what's going on in Palestine. Somewhere uh, it's rising by the day 15 to 20,000? Did you, you, maybe some of you just, you're too young. World War II, which I was not born then, okay, 60 to 70 million people died. You can go look it up. There's some question, but, and that would be both in military and in the civilization. 60 to 70 million. Then we rolled out, and my dad was in the Korean War, and then there's Vietnam, and then there was the whole movement that came after that. I could hardly think we're getting better and better, Um, so I think we move on, okay? That's post-mill. Then there's another sequence called amillennialism, much more popular than post-mill, okay, what is that, Scott? Well, I think you can hear it in the word. Ah gives it a negative. If somebody was amoral, that would not be good. Amillennialism teaches that there's no millennial kingdom. Or let me say they deny the millennial kingdom on earth. They're all millennial. You say, what would they do with Revelation 20? Well, they would spiritualize that. They would say it already occurred at 70 AD. They might say Revelation 20 is symbolic, metaphorical language. There is in all millennialism no future millennium, millennial kingdom. Say, how is that? Well, the kingdom began, kingdom began at the first coming of Christ by his life and ministry, by his death, resurrection, and the ascension. And the present age in which we live is the millennial kingdom. So it's, you say, well, they don't believe in the millennium. Well, maybe that's not the best definition. They believe in a millennium. They just believe that you're in it right now. And the present age is that millennial kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, and I would agree with that, is at hand. Jesus said, if you see me casting out, you know, demons, then recognize that the finger of God is upon you and the kingdom is come. And I, I would recognize that as well. But it's not the whole gist of the kingdom, okay? They believe right now Satan is bound. I don't quite understand. In other words, at the death of Christ, Christ dealt him, um, he was dealt, Satan was, a death blow. And presently, he is bound in some way so that the gospel can begin to flourish. So that was, that's still hard for me to see that he's bound, okay? And so they sometimes call this a realized millennium. It's not a futuristic earthly reign. It's realized right now, and you're in it. And the Son of Man then is coronated at his resurrection and his ascension And so they spiritualize those things as well, and that he's bound. The book of Revelation in an all-millennial package is fulfilled, all of it, at 70 AD, okay? Promises to Israel are now fulfilled in the church, One of the main tenets, I don't want to lose you here. There is no, in an all-millennial scheme, a future for Israel unless something is happening individually in the heart. Some people have dubbed all-millennialism replacement theology. And what they mean by that is there's no future for ethnic Israel, okay? You say, where did all-millennialism come from? You said, that's what everybody believed. No, it came from the third century. It came probably closer to the fourth century. A new school of interpretation was beginning to come through called the Alexandrian School of Interpretation. And what came with that interpretation was a man by the name of Origen And then a later church father that we respect is Augustine. But they spiritualized their understanding of this very discussion. Origen especially began to allegorize the word of God. And so this is where we are today. Post-mill, ah-mill. Finally, there's pre-mill. That's the position we hold here that you say, well, what is pre-mill? He comes prior to the millennial kingdom. He comes down at a second coming. The beast and the false prophet are slayed. Then... Verse, chapter 20 of Revelation, he will come physically, he will come bodily to the earth prior to the millennial rule and reign of the millennium at the second coming. Pre-mill, we are, is future in its orientation. The book of Revelation, of course, there's historical chapters in two and three, but those are chapters that revealed the seven churches, but it's future in orientation, okay? Uh, Revelation as well as future, and when Christ returns, he will, this is the teaching, establish a literal earthly kingdom for a thousand years known as the millennial kingdom that he will rule and reign physically on this earth now when you read revelation 20 it's during that time that satan is bound okay and in that time of a thousand years christ rules in righteousness joy abounds peace flourishes okay justice flourishes won't that be a great time Throughout the whole earth, it will be ruled by one perfect person, the Son of Man. And during that thousand years, sin will be dealt with instantly. The righteous, it says, as I read, will be raised from the dead to participate in this coming kingdom ruled by our Lord. And then it says there, there was another resurrection. That is the resurrection at the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand year reign. You say, well, what happens after the thousand-year reign? It's just called the eternal state. You can read it in Revelation 21 and 22. So I believe John the Apostle is laying this all out for us. Premillennialism gives a literal fulfillment, and I'll share those with you next week, of the prophecies given in the Old and New Testament concerning the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, okay. Now you say, well, which view is the oldest? And I'll be done. Maybe this should surprise you. Premillennialism is the oldest of the three views in church history that best expresses the different passages of Scripture and the book of Daniel. In fact, the predominant view of the early church for nearly three centuries was premillennialism. And I say that because some people think amillennialism is so popular, but when you follow church history, and I wouldn't want to lift that above the authority of scripture, um, you find it in the writings of Papias, Justin Martyr, premillennialism, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Barnabas, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, to name a few. And they were all premillennialist. And so you say, well, when did it change? Well, it changed with the Alexandrian school of interpretation with Origen and then later by Augustine. Listen, there is so much more, but I am out of time So will you come back next week and we'll pick this up, okay?